This podcast has now been referenced in keynote speeches at Arabia HQ, Architects Journal, BD Online, and GB News. Hello, Jason here. Before I start the podcast, I would just like to share some news. The Brock Architect podcast is now raising money for the Architects Benevolence Society. And I have set a target of £1,500 by December the 15th, 2023. Please consider donating as you never know when you yourself would need help. Links in the show notes. Now back to the podcast. This is season two of The Broke Architect. I have a question for you. Are you an architect and are you f***ing broke? If the answer is yes, it's what I've suspected for many years, as I am indeed an architect myself. This podcast is about debt in the profession of architecture, and I want to hear from you. Are you just surviving month to month with no extra money for savings? Or are you seriously broke and in debt, and stress and worry about your income? Or does your wife, husband, or significant other earn substantially more than you which gives you a great life, given the ability to choose your clients, when you work and who for, or have you attained financial freedom in architecture? If you're in the first two categories, surviving month to month or facing financial difficulties, how is this affecting your mental health? Are you suffering from depression or even despair? Please share, subscribe, and comment to support the channel. In this episode, we talk about negotiating fees for architects and interior designers. We are joined by Nigel Osteen, Delivery Director of Hawkins Brown Architects, also Paul Idden of Agency PSI, Alaria Coppola, and Alan Jones, the past president of the Royal Institute of British Architects, but also Sarah Soltzar, from the USA joins us. But I just want to welcome everyone who's come into the room and we will be kicking off soon. And this week I have got two, well, three great speakers, but um, Alaria will be here soon. So we have got Nigel um, Austin, who is the delivery director and he's a partner at Hawkins Brown Architects. One of the, I think you're in the top, are you in the top 10? Yeah, we are. Yeah, we are now. Fantastic. So you're also a member of the RIBA Practice and Profession Committee as well? Well, um, yeah, I mean, just just to jump in, uh, that committee has been disbanded. um, And it's because the RIBA is going through a sort of slight rethink about this. But more importantly than that, I still share a group called the Client Liaison Group, which I think is very relevant. And we'll talk about that later on because there's all sorts of useful stuff on that. Yeah. No, no, no. Fantastic. I'm really pleased to have Nigel here because I've read a lot of what you've written about this topic. So it's fantastic to have you um, in the room. It's my pleasure. uh, Yeah, thank you for coming. And I also want to introduce Paul, who did a fan. I think this is a perfect follow on from last week. And Paul captivated everyone with with the marketing for architects and interior designers last week. And I've had so much feedback and 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 positive it's all for positive poll by the way oh um, that's good so <laughs> been the alternative <laughs> well yeah and 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 you know your your vice um president of manchester society of architects and you 
did, you were a, a, a partner or director for OMI Architects for many, many years before you set up their agency, PSI. I'm sure you've had lots of experience with negotiating fees and maybe, maybe we can, we can dig into that as well. So I think, I think we will make a start and I'm, I'm just going to make a statement first of all, because I think it's always good to set the room. So people, you can come up on stage, first of all, and ask questions, but I really want to open this up, first of all, to Nigel and Paul, um, just to talk about the the aspect of fees and maybe why um, architects um, could be seen as being quite bad at this or certain architects as well. And, you know, we need to be more business-like. And I think that's um, true of uh, many in the creative professions. And I just wanted to pose this to maybe Nigel and Paul, you know, why do you think we are seen as being quite bad at sort of negotiating fees? Just as, just as a first starter question. Should I, should I go first, Paul? Go I think, yeah. I mean, you're in the twin. I'm, 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 I'm looking a bit from outside on this, to be honest. So I, I see your greater knowledge, Nigel. Well, look, I think, Jason, the reason I think that people think we're probably not very good at it is because I think we're not very good at it, quite honestly, on the whole. Um, and, and you know, perhaps small wonder. I mean, you know, when you decide to become an architect when you're 18, typically, you know, sort of when you're at school, I don't know about you, but I didn't really have a clue, um, any, no idea about business at that point. Really, all I wanted to do was design cracking buildings and, you know, all the rest of the stuff that comes with it, you sort of gradually realise and and I suppose, you know, some people are great designers, some people are great business people, some are both, but but not all the time. And um, I think there's a lot, you know, there are practices that have done really well where they typically have, you know, the partners are perhaps a mix of that. So you might get, you know, typically one who's a really good designer, one who's a great at business development, you know, chatting to clients and bringing the work in, another one who's pretty good at doing the sort of backroom, really important backroom stuff of negotiating fees, getting the money in and doing all that sort of stuff. So so I think it probably comes down to the fact that it's maybe not why people become architects in the first place. We don't really get trained in it. We certainly don't at the School of Architecture, which is probably a good thing, actually. But um, you sort of maybe touch on it in your part three. I guess it's similar for interior designers. You know, when you get into work, it's just not something you, you learn it by doing it and by watching, you know, your peers. And if you have a really good, you know, if you're lucky enough to work at a practice where they do that sort of thing well and you can learn from them, then so so be it. I mean, obviously, there are probably now quite a lot of books around that you can read. There's quite a lot of stuff online about this sort of stuff. But, um, yeah, no, I think, you know, it's probably because it's not really our core. When you want to become an architect, I think most of the time you just want to be, you know, people whose focus is more on being a good designer, not necessarily on being a business person. But you're right. Architects have to have a successful business if you want to create good buildings because, you know, if you go out of business, you're clearly not going to do that anymore. And if you're not earning sufficient profit, you're not going to be able to invest the time that you need to both develop the designs as, they, as they're progressing. You need enough money to do that in your fee uh, because it's sort of iterative process of design and also to be able to invest in all the other things that, that go with it. So, you know, improving your IT infrastructure and all of these sort of things, which sort of are collateral that help you to do a better job. So. Yeah, so I think the sort of answer, why don't we do it, you know, why don't we do it very well? Or why are we perceived as not doing it very well? Probably because, you know, maybe we shouldn't beat ourselves up too much, but um, but we could certainly do better at it, I think. And there are all sorts of techniques 
So I think people are gradually learning, but maybe we can talk about that. No, absolutely. I think that that that's absolutely fantastic. And just Alaria is coming to the room before we go to Paul. Alaria, welcome. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Hello. Hi, so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna make you a moderator, and we're just we're just opening up, um, Alaria, with the first question. With and again, I want you to chime in maybe after after Paul. Is you know why it, the question I've just posed to the room is why are we um, often seen or or maybe we are a bad at sort of negotiating fees and be in business as well. That was the opening question. But Paul, go for it. What, uh, well, what are your well, thoughts on this? Yeah, I think Nigel's absolutely right. Um, and you know, we're, architects. I mean, I've been one of banging on this particular drum for a while. I mean, I you know, I, I, it, I remember what it was like at OMI. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know, and I've been in the creative industry ever since, although not in architecture. You know, I, and sometimes I was quite embarrassed um, working in things like packaging design, for instance. On you know, given the kind of work it was, the amount of fee we got. I used to think back in architecture and think, oh my god, you know, this is just—it's actually, you know, what the thing is, architects do a huge amount of work for. A, a relatively modest fee, I think, when you divide it up with the hours. Uh, and I think Nigel's right. I mean, not only are architects not trained in it, um, and I think there is things you can do which give you a little bit of a grounding in in um, in, in sort of the mechanics of, of, of commerciality. Because, you know, we can't ignore it any more than we can ignore we balance our bank accounts. You know, it's, it's a similar... We do it in private life. It's... In a sense, you're just doing it in a in a different context. You have to, you know, you know, it's Mr. Micawber, isn't it, Nigel? You know, um, annual income twenty shillings, um, Charles Dickens, is it? and annual uh, expenditure nineteen shillings and sixpence result happiness. Annual expenditure twenty shillings and sixpence result misery. You know, it's like the. And when I talk, you know, a lot of architects aren't comfortable with the idea of profit. And I say, well, don't call it profit, then call it surplus. But you need profit to invest, as Nigel quite rightly pointed out. Um, but I think primarily it's because architects are, don't, and this is going to sound uh, probably a bit provocative, but I don't think architects are in it for the money. I don't think they're motivated by money. I think they're motivated by other things. And the money is a byproduct of what they do. Um, money only becomes a problem when you don't have enough of it generally and i think the kind of it's coming home to roost a little bit especially with the shift to dmb for instance and uh, the kind of squeeze that gets put on architects but there are techniques you use one of our sponsors at manchester society what they're called fresh projects i don't know why they call themselves that brand but they do kind of um software that help you calculate a fee um and it, it, it's a discipline that make, it, it makes you go through a way of pricing things realistically and I, you know, I think there are tech tools and techniques out there you, you can help. There's never been more information on this, but I come back to the whole my point again about marketing um, last week, and that is one of the biggest problems facing architects and designers in general is differentiation. If you you are easy to compare with other practices or other designers, then you're in a bit of a price fight. Taking a position on it. I mean, I'd say Hawkins Brown have got a fantastic reputation, and I would, I would suggest that you know that they you know that they have the issues with negotiating fees, but there are probably other practice types who have a 
are far tougher time because there's just so many competitors uh, in the market. And the other thing as well is about what drives fees is reputation. Uh, we talk about brands like Apple, and I think the conversation straight into, well, nobody goes into a supermarket and tries to haggle in Sainsbury's or, or, or you know, or Curry's or you know, the Apple store. You go and say, well, I like it, but I'll give you not 20% off and we'll, we'll, we'll call it a deal. They just look at you, don't they? So people are expected to, uh, you know, they, they, they understand that retail pricing isn't a legally fixed thing. It's called an invitation to treat. But they're, they're far more comfortable challenging service than they are product cost, if you know what I mean. So there's, there's a whole, for me, there's a whole background behind fees, which is nothing to do with the money. It's to do with the reputation and the standing and the awareness, but also the skill sets. You know, there are things that you can leverage better fees because you can well the term in marketing is you work to eliminate the competition or make them irrelevant and that's about positioning so there you know there's a sales aspect to this as i said last week and there's a marketing aspect and you have to be able to work on both for it to work effectively um but there's lots of things you can do like price bracketing um, you know, you, you, the kind of you're tailoring the service you offer to the price they're willing to pay. You know, so you you know you don't offer a one size fits all solution. Um, anyway, so that's kind of it's kind of where I'd go. It's complicated. Do you know what I mean? No, absolutely, Paul. Thank you, thank you so much for that. Um, and I think there's a lot of stuff we can pick up on on that uh, again with Nigel when when we come back to maybe my next question. But Alaria, what are your thoughts on, because um, you were the one who actually inspired this debate. You, you know, you came up with this um, uh, thing, which I really, I really didn't want to do this room until I had the right people on stage to talk about this, who so can talk about it with authority. But I think you were the one who just really inspired this uh, debate. I, you know, straight away I wanted to intervene. Um... And the reason being, it seems to be such a, a, a secretive um, subject when we talk about fees. Nobody wants to disclose it, but yet, yet is something we are all facing. And like I was mentioning last week, when it comes down to you, you uh, offer a price and the client, the other side straight away wants to negotiate. And I hear, and I value what Paul had to say about differentiation and reputation, because of course that affects the pl the price. But then again, I find the differentiation point even more astute and important, because had it not been for the differentiation, we would be offering exactly the same thing. Because at the end of the day, I'm speaking as a, an interior designer. If I find a project that is unique and I find it interesting, and I'm going back to what you were saying, Paul, about the passion for what we are doing, if I find a project that speaks out loud, I'm ready to negotiate it because I want to be involved. I had, I think I mentioned it the other day, I have this um, loft conversion and I'm doing it and I'm absolutely enjoying every single step 
uh, these clients are taking and I'm there and I'm guiding them and the, the, the attention to details but this time it's not it's not being calculated in the fee I'm just doing it because I really want to be involved that's all but when it comes down to fee it's a difficult I still find it a difficult subject because do you actually charge your fees based on your what you think is going to be the time you're going to spend in making the plans and doing what you're doing um, or how do you charge your fees let's be really honest with one another that's where I really what I would love to get out of today can I, can I just say one thing there Larry and I don't know for Nigel because obviously Hook is, um, you know, you deal with much, much bigger projects, which is much more complex. So I suppose I'm talking to the 80% of architects' practices that aren't, aren't Hawkins Brown or, you know, um, Foster and Partners or, um, but are, you know, if you like, you know, the, 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 the 10 or less or five or less architects. One thing you said there, Larry, okay. And one of the problems that with architects, I think, and designers in general is neuro-linguistic processing it's language okay so you use the term that loft conversion now a loft conversion can literally be you got a builder in to stick up some plasterboard and insulate the roof <laughs> and put a staircase up to it couldn't you yes 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 or you could, or you could describe it differently now did you, i know this sounds trite but just bear with me a minute I mentioned last week, you know, we, we, you, you, are you aware of Marks and Spencer's supermarket, you know, and the, the store in the UK? Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, okay. Yes. Well, 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 Marks and Spencer's, they, they do well, very well with food. They're not so good on clothing anymore, but food, they're, they're, they're still very leading. And the trick they found, and, and I mentioned this last week, they also found that you can charge up to 20% more by the way you describe a product. Yeah, because humans are weird, you know. We, we, you know, and when we're talking about a B two C consumer, which is what you're talking about, you're not dealing with another business; you're dealing with an, an end user or a consumer, if you like. Then, how you describe things in terms of your service, in terms of what the thing is you're doing, adds value. You know, the language itself. So the joke was, you know, with Marks and Spencers, I can't remember her name. That the Irish actress who, um, who, who I'm going to remember her name, but uh, she, she. Um, she said, you know, in this lilting, fantastic Irish accent with this soft intonation, this isn't vanilla, this is Madagascan vanilla. You know what I mean? You watch MasterChef and how they describe the food. It's the difference between a McDonald's burger and a burger from Gordon Ramsay, which costs 50 quid. You know, the, the, essentially they are the same category of product, but the difference as always, is in the way people value it. And, and I think this is what I said before. I'll just see what, yeah, what Nigel's got to say about this, but it's not really about what you want to charge. It's about what the, 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 the person you're, the service you're offering, it's what they value. Because value is far more important than price. And it's getting into that zone where you, you talk about the value of what you do. So it's not, all, you know, this isn't a loft conversion. This is, you know, lifting people's lives to a higher level. <laughs> you know, I'm joking, but you, you get... I, I, honestly, I'm going to give you a job, Paul. <laughs> can, I, can I engage you, please? I beg you. But, but it's, it, it's, it's sometimes it's as simple as the way you describe things. 
I, I mean, I'm talking about consumer love here, I, but bearing in mind, even with institutional clients, they are still consumers and they are still subject to the same kind of language tricks. Well, they're not tricks, they're just use of language to describe a product. I mean, if you're Italian, uh, you'll know very well, you know, the, 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 the way that value is added to fashion, to food, to wine, you, you name any area of life, you can take something which is budget and you can make it into an experience by the way you describe it, its sense of authenticity, its provenance. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I know we're talking about architecture, not wine, but what we're not, what we're talking about here is the way humans perceive value and the way they perceive something, not, not what it is. It's a similar mechanism. It's the psychology of it. Okay. Should I, I'll, I'll jump in. Um, okay, because okay. I absolutely, I mean, I think we're talking about brand really, aren't we here? And yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, and and uh you know we're designers so brand is is super important really and you know you want to that's how you get your foot in the door um in some cases i mean typically you know on a project on sort of larger scale projects a client might uh want to select from a handful of architects who are they going to speak to well they're going to speak to the people they know if they don't know you you're not even going to get the uh the email to say we'd like you to bid for this project so and how do they know you? Well, because you've got some sort of market presence, um, which you work very hard on. Uh, it's different to direct business development. It's the sort of background um, brand and sort of marketing, really, that, that you're, you're creating awareness of, uh, of people. And you are telling them, in a sense, you're telling them sort of how much they should be paying you. Because, you know, if you are a deluxe brand, you're going to cost more than if you are, um, if you're not. So... So yeah, I think I think you should. I mean, there are. I see Alan's come up on the stage. So um, Alan, do you want to chip in? Thank you for the invitation, Nigel. Um, apologies for not being here at the at the at the very start. Build a cross between what both Paul and you were just talking about there, Nigel. Um, I think there is. Well, not I think. The, um, the RIBA at Council and our master plans and looking forward to 2034, which is obviously I much appreciate your input into that, Nigel. That there is a shift, and I think this is what Paul was trying to sort of um, get at, from what architecture is, i.e. bricks, concrete, glass, which is how our fees are very often constructed or built around as construction cost, to what actually architecture does or allows to happen, which is that point around, I know Paul was talking about, uh, you know, Madagascar uh, or vanilla from Madagascar, but instead of, um, I've had a slide that I've used, uh, you know, that shows a, an Erno Goldfinger project and it's um, high rise, one of the, I can't remember whether it's the one in Paddington or East London. And yes, it's a 19, late 60s, early 70s, brutalist building, but actually it's an articulation of, um, uh, policy of uh, regarding housing, reg um, regarding a, a shift in population, and so on. So there, there's, you know, I, I've made a point of coming along tonight because I'm interested to sort of understand what the panel's thoughts are on how do we move away from an appointment system that's based on material to one that's based around performance, as in uh, what is achieved. In the Defining Contemporary Professionalism book, one of the contributors suggested that um, 
over 90% of projects don't deliver on their initial promise, which is around performance. And performance and key, you know, key performance indicators, post-occupancy evaluation, did it deliver? Is it continuing to deliver? All of that is going to be much more, I think, the direction of travel. So how do we, and I suppose the other point to throw into the mix is how do we, if you like, in our appointment, very often, uh, as I understand, the architects are engaged from stage two onwards, i.e. concept design on the RIBA plan of work. But if we think of where to have the most impact and where to in, uh, deliver the most value, zero and one strategic definition and preparation and briefing, very often those big decisions are taken before architects are, are involved and then we're delivered, we're asked to deliver on on decisions that have been made by other people. So it's how do we get ourselves at the table in terms of fees and appointment for zero and one? And how do we shift away from an appointment and fees that are based around construction costs? Should, okay. yeah. should I jump in? Oh, sorry. So I, I think servitization is the term that's used for that, isn't it, Alan? And uh, yeah, it's absolutely, I think it's the sort of, a, it's a sort of buzzword at the moment in a way. It's uh, what is it now? I think probably a slightly old example, but Rolls-Royce don't sell engines anymore. They effectively sell air miles to planes and which is perhaps why they had slight difficulty during COVID actually. Um, and they basically say, look, we're going to effectively keep you in the sky for a period of time. We're not going to be selling you an engine. You're effectively doing, doing it a slightly different way. And so what, what do we need to do as architects? We need to think about what the outcomes that we can deliver for our clients. And perhaps we need to be saying, uh, look, we, these are the outcomes you're going to get. And for some clients that might be, I mean, I think one thing we do generally do pretty well is to create, make money for our clients. You know, what they, the, that you will typically find that probably the, the best creative designers are engaged to get planning permission, uh, where most of the value is derived, I think, for developers, certainly. And then perhaps someone who's, uh, you know, maybe not quite so creative, but maybe better at delivering, then delivers it. And, uh, you know, it's not very satisfying always as an architect to have that situation. But we, we do deliver a lot of value at the front end. We don't necessarily deliver so much value at the back end, and we probably struggle to make more fees on it. But it's slightly unsatisfying not to, to see your building through. But I think the, you know, what we've got to do is start selling outcomes, isn't it? And, uh, and not selling um, services effectively as a, as a sort of version of by the hour because professionals fundamentally do that we however we wrap it up even if it's a fixed fee we work it out by saying okay so first of all how much is going to cost what what do you want client okay now I'm going to work out how much it's going to cost me to deliver that uh, and we haven't really talked about that yet I mean you've you know it's sort of a fundamental which I sort of assume people would generally understand is You've got to know what it's going to cost you to deliver the service in the first place. If you don't, then, you know, how are you going to work out uh, how much to charge? So, but we've got to stop probably using that classic professional's way of working something out, which is how much time is it going to take me? How much, how much does my time cost? That's the figure that I've got to at least get. And then the rest of it is my profit. And the profit will depend to some extent. We were talking about, um, you know, differentiation and reputation and so on. The profit you can charge is probably to do with that. But actually, I think we've sort of got to get away from that model because that's slightly what's been holding us and probably many other professionals back. And where we could really drive, uh, where we could really get better remuneration and haven't done is to sell the value that we deliver. So, you know, I mean, some architects I know make a point of building up a bit of cash in the bank 
so that they can then speculate with their developer clients. So rather than charging a fee, if you're pretty confident you're going to get a really cracking planning consent and increase the value of the piece of land, then maybe you sort of go in uh, as a, a shareholder, as it were, with the developer and you get the benefit of the uplift in the value of the site that way rather than just charging a fee and you know being slightly disinterested in the sense that professionals are disinterested or not don't have in other words don't have a financial interest in the work they're doing if we go back i don't know whenever it was perhaps to the 1980s i think and architects weren't allowed to be you know directors or to, to develop and things like that and that you know our regulations wouldn't allow us that was changed i think in about the mid 80s um, and I think we still, though, think, I think, you know, the way that we think is still back in those days when you actually weren't allowed to sort of derive financial gain from, you know, property investment and so on. And there's perhaps there's something still a legacy of that in the way that we think. So, yeah, I think you're right to suggest that, Alan. I think servitization is the sort of way it's saying let's derive value, let's share in the extra value that we're bringing to our clients. Um, which sort of means you defer your fee. That's the drawback. You've got to, you know, you've got to speculate to accumulate. So if you're going to do that, you've got to have confidence that you're going to bring that value. Um, it's a bit like a, I don't know, what would be a similar, maybe a sort of lawyer's no win, no fee type approach. Um, but you get a much more fee uh, if you do win, or in our case, if you get a good planning consent, or, you know, if you deliver a building which achieves the outcomes that you've said they will further down the line. So, yeah, there are definitely... Um, you know, this is sort of the next stage of thinking, I think, in a way, but assuming people already know about the basics of, well, that you've got to establish your costs before you can put your fee together. Mm -hmm. The next stage is, is what you're saying, I think, Alan, which is, uh, which is working out your fees on a fundamentally different basis. Okay, can I just uh, come in? Alan, you know what I'm going to say now. No, I don't. <laughs> if you think deeply, reach back into your past, reach into your mind. The problem the RIB has got in, in talking about this it's a it's well it's two problems one is a category problem okay um it's a bit like and one is a level problem it's a bit like when we're talking about cpd okay um it's it's like you know it's like measuring it by weight you know the, the appropriate measure is difficult but coming back to the point the problems the riba is 80 percent of the membership work in small practices and that you know that the the clients are one-off clients they're probably going to never do anything again and bearing in mind was it up until this year i saw the business benchmarking for 2021 didn't make pretty reading but presuming that that's a, an aberration in the in a 10-year period the la one of the last ones said that 40 percent of all the fees earned by architects in the united kingdom were on alterations extensions and one-off houses which makes that the largest category of any of, of all the categories that architects work in okay if you add in multiple residential housing that goes to went up to 55 percent. so that left 45 percent for hospitals airports police stations Paul, you know, I, I, just to throw in my controversial contribution to this i wrote an article a few years ago um where i slightly cheekily suggested that architects really should stop doing house extensions um it's a massive part of the profession's income doing that sort of scale of work yeah but it's really difficult to make any sensible sort of income from it if you look at the benchmarking figures so look maybe we just say look if you're going to be an architect don't worry with that stuff that's uh you know less than a million quid you know you should really be focusing on the bigger projects because the fact is that large practices working on bigger projects do make a sensible amount of money this is a big generalization 
small and um, well as you say micro practices really working on smaller projects particularly as they are not repeat clients and they're having to educate their clients every time really difficult to do that uh, uh, and yet well, you still spend seven years at least probably more probably more like 10 in reality you spend you spend five years in university and nowadays lumping up massive costs for doing that if you're then going to go on and do house extensions you don't really need five years of university education to do that so why do we do it? Why, why don't we well, just focus on the bigger projects? Well, well, I mean, I think, you know, why people do all sorts of things is a very, very good question. I mean, <laughs> why do people volunteer for things, you know, where there's no money involved? In fact, it's going to cost them money. So that's a very complex question. I agree with you. In theoretically, the architect's business model doesn't work low levels of fee income. It's completely broken from that point of view. I mean, now that you add, um, you know, probably, well, at least £50,000 of, of actual um uh, education fees plus your living costs for five years i mean it's a six-figure sum isn't it at least well, quite frankly um, to train just for the university part never mind the two years and working in practice nigel and paul um uh, i i'm going to um I'm going to actually try and chair the conversation slightly and that to just because I'm feeling a bit guilty about mentioning those four letters. Um, I think it, you know, to bring it back onto topic, which is negotiating fees for architects and interior designers. I think what we're talking about here is, is different, um, different scale of business. Yeah. Um, um, and uh, if you know the but the I, I suppose what I was suggesting was that this idea of how do you orientate your offer where it's seen as relevant and valuable that that the, the clients wish to pay for maybe over and above somebody else you know so that um when i came into the room i think it was you paul we're talking about different levels of service i'm not sure if it was you or one of the architects up in manchester who offer a bronze silver and gold service and when you actually sit down with a client and, and explain what those levels are 90% of the time they will go for the gold service you know it's like sort of you know when somebody if you walk into a new car garage and they'll they'll explain where the um where, you know do you want the basic model oh aircon that's extra do you want um oh well I was I could be I could be cynical and say oh you want wheels oh those are extra but it's that sort of moving away from let's call it the the, the the really challenging low fee, which I think is the point that Nigel's making around uh, it's a broken business model. And how do we move and, if you like, work to get ourselves uphill um, and uh, where we're generating more fees for ourselves? You know, the one person suggested um, calling ourselves consultants rather than uh, uh, architects. As soon as you call yourself a consultant, you seem to get seen as having more value rather than a, a purely so, a, as an architect. Yeah. So, Alan, I think I think again, you know, it's a bit like people sort of understanding you have to calculate your costs before you can take your fee. I mean, I think people are starting to be aware of these sort of retailing techniques you're talking about, like anchoring and cross-selling and upselling. I think there's a there's a bit of a question about how well that works for professional services. I mean, I, I'm not saying it doesn't. I've, I've sort of got in mind that maybe uh, I should start doing a bit bit more like that. So for those who who perhaps don't uh, know these terms, so anchoring is, is the classic retailing technique where you put, uh, I don't know, a really expensive handbag in the shop window um, so that when people go in to buy something, they're already... Uh, sort of accustomed to the fact that it's uh, it's relatively inexpensive compared to that. 
that no one is ever intended to buy that uh, that sort of fifteen hundred pound handbag. Um, but it just helps to get you in the right frame of mind. And then, you know, so cross selling is I don't know. Would you like fries with that? And uh, upselling, would you like large fries? You know, it's those sort of things. And and I think we can use those techniques, and uh, and they should make a difference. I slightly go back to the point of is this the right model in the first place? And I think you had your finger on it, really, Alan, which is this whole point of servitization and not actually, um, you know, effectively working on the basis of a converting back from an hourly rate, but forgetting all of that and just saying, uh, we, you know, no one else does that. Manufacturers don't do that, do they? Effectively, you know, you buy, a, you buy an iPhone because of what it's worth to you. So let's start trying to sell our services on what, the perception of value is of our work so let's build up the perception of that value let's make clients realize really we're worth a lot more than we, we're giving them you know we're designing places they're going to live and work and so on which is so important and well, uh, Nigel, well, there's one you've, there's one other one which you could talk about which is unbundling yeah, yeah which is what easyjet do and people like that you know you you see the the cost of the um the cost of the flight is not what you end up paying because then you say, oh, you know, do, do you want to put a bag in the hold? Or oh, that's X. Do you want to choose your seat? Do you want speedy boarding? Do you want, <clears throat> I mean, I've just been to Sweden and back and given the state of the pandemic, I was, I, I used every option I had. I bought a, a, on SS Scandinavian Airlines that, you know, they tear those carefully. I mean, I'm, I know what you mean about it because bracketing is another one that the, the economists is a classic version of that. Where you yeah you have the as you said the, 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 the usually the, the 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 idea is you don't have bronze silver and gold you have silver gold and platinum and you get people to buy the gold service because the platinum one is the one you don't expect to get which relates back to anchoring again you know what one of the when I did this flight you know I ended up spending almost twice as much on the flight than the original booking because I wanted to buy the seat next to me so I was sitting on my own I wanted to be at the front of the plane and. You know, they allow you to bid for that. You can pay an extra £25 to sort of have to make sure the seat next to you is empty. Now, they, they're selling you a seat that hasn't been sold. So it's it's quite a clever model. But one thing I'd go back to, and I think one of the problems for architects, considering the work we do, one of the problems with architects is how unemotional they are in the way they approach it, given that their target audience are emotional creatures. Now, you know, you can talk about value, but you can, or you can also talk about desire. And also you can also talk about um, ego. Now, you don't necessarily that with the client, but, you know, there are plenty of ways in which you can upsell, as you say, by playing into people's perceptions of what they're doing. Go back to the loft conversion. If it's a loft conversion, then at one level, that sounds pretty functional, right? You're creating an extra bedroom. But that's not what you're doing, actually, because anybody knows if you do a loft conversion, you end up actually re almost reconfiguring the house in a new way. I think architects are are not good at describing it and i think part of the problem there alan is is that the roba offers almost operates on a one-size-fits-all strategy you know you can't charge you know it's almost like it's predicated looking at the big projects with the big practices but at the lower end of the scale it's almost like it's not worth doing well for a kickoff if that was true there wouldn't be any architects operating that end of the scale but there are so clearly there's something else going on here and I agree, you know, I, I'm absolutely certain that if a, every architect spoke differently, um, actually presented their ideas differently and used different language, they could probably stick on 10% straight away. 
just because of playing into the person's psychology you're talking to. And again, psychology of, you know, um, psychology of selling, psychology of marketing, I would, I can't imagine, I've never seen that on any curriculum. And yet, you know, essentially what architects do all the time is sell. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Paul, you were saying, why is it that a good number of architects work on those smaller projects? <laughs> I think, I mean, it'd be interesting. I don't know how you'd research this, but to get to the bottom of it, why that is. But, you know, I, I sense that it's probably because when you set up your practice, you don't necessarily have, I mean, some people will set up a practice with a larger client uh, to get them going. That obviously then the trick is to keep it going. But many people will start it up, perhaps without a, without a collection of clients to go to. And the easy, the low hanging fruit is those smaller projects where, you know, people aren't, um, you know, you're not asking clients to, to speculate too much on you. Um, so, but it's very difficult then to break out of those smaller projects. I think that's the thing that stops it. If you look at the larger practices, the people that set them up have done it in such a way that they're right from the offset going for bigger projects and really, you know, probably investing. I mean, maybe they're lucky. Maybe they have some money behind them, you know, an inheritance or something like that in some cases, but they have the ability to not have to take some of those smaller projects and they can build on uh, going for the bigger ones to get them going. But it's a, it is a potentially difficult thing to get out of, I think, just working on uh, on smaller projects all the time. And I, I think that might be part of the reason. Well, okay. was it Michael Graves said, do you remember this one, Nigel? Michael Graves said, kitchen extensions beget kitchen extensions and art galleries beget art galleries. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Except yeah. the irony of Michael Graves is he did an extension for an art gallery director well, and then next doing the art gallery. <laughs> well, he also did houses as well. But I mean, but yes, but they were very nice, interesting houses. And um, yeah, no, look, I mean, I think I'm just I'm just sort of surmising as to why why it might be that we that we get stuck with that. Sorry, Jason. Um, just to sort of, if, if I could chip in. Um, yeah, go for it, and then I'm gonna. I wanna because we're on the first question. <laughs> oh right. Oh sorry. Um, I should maybe I should just keep quiet and let you get on to the next question. Well, maybe 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 it's more kind of relevant. But I'm interested in like the ar architects and interior designers coming from a position of strength, and I think Nigel, you've mentioned this in um, an article for for the RIBA, you know, and, and how you can potentially do that. So I want to kind of fuse it with with something as well about understanding what and why it's critical to understand um the client and what the client really wants so you know so i want to talk about how do you think we can come from a position of strength and negotiate that great fee and and then maybe understanding the client and the client's business will help that and if we if we can ask that to everyone on stage should i kick off because this goes to the root of the client group that that when you were doing the introductions jason that um so i've for the last uh, seven or eight years i've chaired a group at the riba which we call the client liaison group and fundamentally what we've done is through a series of different programs we've gone and asked clients for their view on architects in different aspects as it happens at the moment our program which we just started uh last week was to ask clients their view on sustainability to understand you know what drivers um you know what's driving decision making in that from their point of view but you know we started off with some pretty basic questions uh, going back a few years and saying um you know effectively where do you think architects are adding value what sort of things do you want architects to be doing i mean obviously we design their buildings but you know what other things do you want 
what sort of characteristics uh, do you want and you know what informs your decision making when you're looking for an architect and we've had some fantastic feedback i mean i think you know probably larger practices will go and poll their clients from time to time and ask these sort of questions but they're never going to tell anyone else it's their own sort of intellectual property so i think the great thing about the roba doing this is that it has been completely open sourced information there for all the members to read and uh, and i just recommend everyone that's listening to this to go and look some of this up because really is i think some quite valuable invaluable material if you search online RABA for clients, um, you, you'll find a, a good amount of the material. We've got a publication called Client and Architect. We've done a client survey in, back in 2016. And the sort of things that we found, and, and this sort of goes back to fees, because clearly if you're doing what the clients want, they're more likely to be paying you the sort of fee that you need for it. It does come down to value, I think. So the sort of things that they uh, want, uh, I mean, there's a whole range of stuff, but one that particularly I've always, that's always stuck with me um, is there was a direct correlation. Well, there was a correlation between um, how satisfied clients were, because we were fundamentally asking them typically how satisfied are you with X, Y, and Z, but how broadly how satisfied they were increased in the, at the same time as being a, able to have opportunity to give feedback so one thing that we never or rarely as architects art do is ask our clients everything okay you know simple as that in a sense how is it going are you happy with everything and i think there's always a bit of a reluctance to do that because you never you know which project ever goes so smoothly that there's not been a problem with it so if you assuming you're working on those projects if you you're sort of thinking well i'm not going to ask that because they're only going to bring up that time when we were you know a bit late with that drawing or something but the feedback seems to be that if we do go and ask clients for feedback uh, on a reasonably regular basis on a on certain sort of categories about things which which we've through this research found they're interested in you will get a higher level of satisfaction from your client so i think one thing that i want to suggest uh, as a sort of t uh, one of the sort of takeaways for people listening to this is if you want to increase your fees uh, give your clients the opportunity to feedback at the very least at the end of the project but really it's probably a bit too late by then i would suggest that you do it um at sort of key stages during the project it's basically just you know informally it's just checking everything okay you're happy with the way the design's going is there anything that you know you'd think uh, you would like to see us doing slightly differently um it obviously helps for clients who are potentially going to be repeat clients, but I think even for, for one-off clients, because how do you get work in those cases? You get it by recommendation. So, you know, your, your, your next client is probably recommended to you by your current client. So I think ask for feedback. There are a whole raft of other things, which, if, you know, if you look up this stuff, RBA client survey, uh, you'll find, and uh, it, it's well worth a read. Um, but they're simple things like, you know, they want us to, to be leaders but leaders in the right way. So it doesn't just mean, you know, going around and strutting around and telling people what to do. It means being a leader in the best sense of the word. So taking responsibility, carrying the design team along with you, caring about things fundamentally. What were the other things? They want, um, this is probably more for larger projects, but, uh, and particularly contractors. So contractors, architects, not a, always a great relationship, I think, if we're honest. A uh, little bit of friction there. Um, but a lot of architects' work is through design and build. I think, Paul, you might have mentioned that before, um, where we're working for contractors as our clients. So a lot of the feedback we got from contractors, actually some of the worst feedback on the services was from contractors. 
Now, look, we can either sort of, you know, shrug our shoulders and say, well, what the hell, the hell do they know? Bloody Philistines, you know. But if we want to get work with these people, and if, if you're working on bigger projects, fundamentally, if you want to s deliver your building, that's how you've got to do it, because most buildings are delivered in this way through design and build, then you've got to understand what they want. And, you know, they're fairly simple folk. They just want you to do what you say you're going to do in the time that you're going to do it. Um, because their program is, uh, you know, if they get their program disrupted, it's pretty critical to them from a financial point of view. So, as I say, I think, you know, just going back to fees, one way of getting the fees you want is to be able to, we talked about, you know, differentiation, reputation and so on. So, you know, it's the basic stuff. Do a good job, you know, be reliable. Do, do, do what you say you're going to when you say you're going to do it. Um, you know, be a good listener. That was another thing. There were positive outcomes in terms of, of what clients wanted if they felt they were being listened to properly, you know, primarily in the briefing stage, but really right throughout. And that doesn't just mean paying lip service and sort of, you know, yeah, OK, give me a brief. Right. OK, now I'm going to come back and tell you what you really, which uh, I think is the perception some clients have of architects that were slightly aloof. So listening, really important and learning, you know, from from previous experience. So. So, yeah, I think that's, you know, another piece, you know, one of the big piece of advice I'd have to people today is that if you want to get good fees, uh, you've got to understand what it is that the clients are looking for um, because you'll be giving them more value and they're more likely to give you a better fee for that. And so I'm just going to close with one sort of anecdote. One of the clients that we had quite a while ago, that he was a, you know, fairly hard nosed developer. And he said, you know, quite frankly, he, he, they acknowledge, they know the value that we bring to them, particularly, as I say, around uh, getting good planning consents and so on. And he said, and he was serious about this. He said, you know, the architect who I think is going to be the best one for the job, who is going to create a really good quality building for me and, and you know, frankly, make me money. I'm not going to have a very difficult conversation about fees with them. I'm not really going to be chipping away at their fee because I'd be cutting my nose off, nose off to spite my face. I'm going to be, you know, I'm basically going to make want to make sure that they are engaged and they're going to do a good job because I know that if they do a good job, I'm going to make money out of it and I'm going to have a building that I'm proud of at the end of it. So I think there's there's a lot of advice in that um, from the client liaison group. Can so I, do go do go and look it up, folks. Can I can I um I, I appreciate you saying, Nigel, that you know some of the uh, the smaller categories of work are probably not what they should be doing, but they are. So I, I feel like I should. Take the point of view of okay, the smaller practices that are doing, you know, the, the one-off houses and things like this, and there's plenty of them doing it. So, um, I think I think um, there's, you, you know, me, um, Jason. I, I, I think I told you this one. Have you watched a film called House of Games? It's a 1980s film done by David Mamet, and it's about confidence tricksters. Now. Bear with me on this one, okay? Because I learned a lot from this film. There's, there was a scene where the confidence trickster was showing the psychiatrist how he was going to get money off somebody in a way that the person wanted to give them the money, okay? Now, um, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a story behind this, but what, what I did never realise, when these people talk about a confidence trick, everybody assumes that it's about you get somebody's confidence. You talk somebody, talk somebody, you get their confidence and they will give you money, okay? And that's not the way it works. And I think this actually taps into what Nigel's saying. What actually happens is you give people your confidence. And in business, since I've been in architecture, the one strategy, I learned a lot from that film, one strategy I learned is, number one, understand your client's pain understand that that the, you know the way they want to live okay give them your confidence that you can help deliver that for them 
and you, you, you don't you know yeah the whole feedback thing formal feedback great i mean but that's mainly for larger kind of institutional or business clients where especially with multiple where there's going to be repeat work but on this at the other end of the scale where a lot of people operate it's holding their hand through it they will see the value in you if you invest in them and you give them your confidence now this is this is nothing to do with the work this is the way you talk to them this is the way you relate to them do you know what i mean it's a human contact thing and there's huge value in that i mean here's one thing if you have an, if you have a meeting with a client simple thing have a cup of coffee maybe a biscuit or a cookie or something. Do you know why? Because it's very difficult for somebody to argue with you when you've broken bread. These are basic psychological tactics you can use with human to human, you know, we're primates. This is hardwired into us. So yes, there's other, of the, the upper level of the larger practices who've got systems in place, they've got fee scales and stuff. If I'm just speaking for the sort of the smaller you know, the, 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 the less profitable end of the business. There are ways you can get people to value what you do, and it's nothing to do with the drawings. It's to do with the way you relate to them as a person. Now, architects are not really well trained in psychology uh, of behavior. So if you want to get better fees, make people want to give you the money. <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's first, that's the first thing to do is how can I, how can I help this person give me more money? and see true value in, in that for me and that again has got nothing to do with design it's got nothing to do with architecture it might have something to do with your title but more often than not it's to do with psychological exercises i, I think last week i mentioned a book that i think everybody should read called alchemy by rory sutherland and alan this is one i've used with you before rory sutherland did a ted talk where he talked about understanding people's you know the psychology of people in this case he's talking about you know when they're looking at eurostar they looked at shaving 30 minutes off the you know the travel time by straightening out bends digging tunnels and infrastructure and it's going to cost 10 billion pounds and he said well what have you looked at it the other way where you spent a tiny fraction of that on absolute world-class broadband so they could work on the train and then they wouldn't really worry too much about 30 minutes or better still Wander, get people to wander around giving them glasses of champagne and, and shatter their feet 64 and they'd ask you actually ask you to slow the train down it you know what people are buying isn't is not is often not what you think it is and it's important to understand that you're dealing with a human being and they have desires they have needs they have pains if you're dealing with somebody who's a middle you know a middle management person in a construction firm or a, an institution then their primary motivation is not architecture, it's keeping their job. Yeah. So, you know, it's understanding the pay that this is called solution selling, but it's understanding the nature of the problem that the person you're dealing with. And that and in that lies the value, actually, far more than design skill. Unless it happens to be like, I mean, you go back to Frank Lloyd Wright. Frank Lloyd Wright it became a corporation in the end. He actually sold his own brand. But Frank Lloyd Wright was 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 good at getting what he wanted because he understood understood what people wanted. And it's it's that there's, there's there was a cartoon called Foghorn Leghorn in the 1950s, and one of the one of the cartoons is actually used on a TED talk again. And the, le the lesson is you can get what you want in life if you help get other people what they want in life. You know what I mean? So it, largely, a lot of the time, architects don't think they're dealing with a human being. 
they're dealing with a project, but there's no project without human beings. So it's not a bad idea to start there. I'll talk too much, but there's a lot more to be gained from psychology than probably from, you know, business economics, because cool. there's things you need to worry about. That. But I was just wanting to, um, to say one more thing um, uh, before we go. Mm -hmm. And I think, well, actually maybe two if I can. Uh, one is just to recommend a book. We were talking about all those sort of retailing techniques and so on, upselling, cross-selling and so on. Read uh, Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow. Yeah. Uh, it's a fascinating yeah. book and it really goes to the root of all that. Brilliant man, Daniel Kahneman, uh, Nobel Prize winner. A uh, very good book. Read that. And I think the other thing I was just going to say was um, we need to probably get to know our clients and know how much we think they're going to pay. And the classic one for doing that is estate agents, because before you go and buy anything from them, they ask you how much you're going to pay. Um, we can't don't seem to be able to do that. And, uh, and maybe I don't know. We, we but if, so an estate agent will always get you probably to spend more than you wanted, if anything. Um, but we never seem to manage to do that. So let's try and understand our clients better. As I said, I mean, please, everyone go and read that stuff that the RBA has published. There's some cracking stuff in there. Um, but let's get to know our clients and ideally find out how much it is they want to spend um, before we start working for them. Another good book there, Nudge Theory by Richard Thaler as well. Yeah, and, and Dan Ariely, um, Power of Motivation. That's a good one. Um, there's loads of stuff like this, um, but Kahneman, yeah, genius, cognitive biases, yeah. No, no thank you, thank you, Nigel, I, I'm, and, and Paul as well. I, I'm conscious we've got Sarah's come to the stage. Um, Sarah, would you would you like to chip in here and before we go back to Alaria and maybe Alan um, on the on this question? Sure, Jason. Thanks so much, and and I think everyone is right. I'm I'm actually sitting here. I'm here in Colorado, United States. I just finished my second uh, degree in architecture. I have a master's in architecture. I'm, I'm working on a city hall as we speak, uh, trying to put in some some fine staircase to, to make them feel special. But I, w I wanted to step in and I wasn't going to. Uh, but I, you know, as, as I'm hearing what everyone's saying, I'm thinking to myself, you know, what is the problem here? I have $140,000 in school debt. And if I stay in the profession as, as the profession is set up for me, which is become an architect, uh, work in an office, I'm, I'm still making as much as I start out here about $50,000, uh, which is, I wouldn't even have to go to school to make that kind of money. We go to school as long as a, um, a lawyer or a doctor, but we start out nearly hundreds of thousands of dollars a year under what they make. Okay, so let's get back to the point, right? Which is how do we set these fees higher? Um, and, and I'm just throwing these ideas out. I'm not saying I know, but I think there's a few things here is that uh, our professional organizations I think the stage is not set well. I, I think that one architecture schools, I don't know about around the world, but here in the United States, because this is such a business uh, free market, uh, I, the ideals here, uh, everyone gets into architecture school. I was shocked at how nearly maybe 90, 95% of my peers at the University of Colorado at Denver it, were 
in the wrong place. They have not a passion nor a talent for architecture, but um, being an architect is is held pretty high up. It's it's a wonderful title, but my peers are not talented. I think that um, they're they're flooding the market. Okay, so that's one. I think that there is a a huge gap and an ignorance over what our value really is in the world. There, even my own mother doesn't understand what my value is. She, she, she asked me, why would someone hire you? Wouldn't they just hire a contractor and tell them where the wall goes? And, you know, we're lost down there with DIY dads and uh, contractors who will do whatever you say. And then there's this huge gap between the architects who do amazing buildings, people can't even relate to them. So the message is not clear. But third, I wanted, I'm not sure who said it, um, talking about getting involved earlier in the process. How do we get involved earlier? And as I'm studying, um, taking my, my exams here in the United States, we have, there's a contract, the, the IDP, you all know the integrated design process contract. And that's where we bring the contractor and the, uh, the architect, the client, everyone important uh, at the beginning of the project rather than throughout and you front load the problems. And then the rest of the project goes much smoother uh, historically as we know. So, so three problems, right? Architecture schools are flooding the, the market and setting the standard low, there is a huge ignorance about what we do, which I think that our professional organizations whom we pay like the AIA uh, could be spreading the message and setting that standard higher. Third, having that integrated design process contract where where we can do good work and, and, and set the standard of course, once again, but even fourth, this, I will put this out there, Maybe there's not enough celebration of what we do. We, you know, we watch the Grammys, we watch the the Super Bowl here in uh, America with the football, and we do all these things. But are we not holding the profession higher? Um, and are we not being clear about what the profession is? And this is the last thing I say, but. Those who get into architecture school, they think, well, you know, I'm, I'm kind of good at math. I'm not great. I'm not an engineer. I can draw, but I'm, I'm not really an artist. I, I'm a, I, you know, I have a bachelor's degree. I can do school. Everyone thinks they can be an architect. And then we get to the market, we get to the clients. And I see uh, even with the people I work with, we're, we're not even able to give them proper design because, because these people are not architects. Anyways, that's what I wanted to say. Four points, architecture, school flooding, um, ignorance of what we do, uh, the design, integrated design contract, and um, maybe we should celebrate ourselves more uh, on the global stage. No, no, thank you, Sarah. Thank you for coming up to the stage as well and, um, you know, what you had to say. I'm sure we, 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 could, we, could, we could go on and debate this, this topic for, for much much longer. I'm, I'm conscious, Alan, I think Alan wants to say something, Paul wants to say something, and, and Laria might do, but we've, so if everyone can be brief, um, just in their responses, I'd appreciate that. Thank you. Um, Jason, I was um, in my very amateur way, trying to find a way to applaud what Sarah was saying. So <laughs> I was trying to put my mic on and off, but um, 
um, not doing a very good job of it. Um, I'm, I'm pleased with what everybody, I'm pleased to hear what everyone's been saying. So that's all from me. Thank you. Fantastic. Larry, before I go back to Paul, would you, would you like to say anything um, from what, what Sarah's just said? I, I'm absolutely taken by uh, what I heard. I'm so, so happy to be here. Thank you so much, Alan, Nigel. Thank you, Sarah. And I'm going to leave you, Paul, to last because I find everything you say mesmerising. Thank you. I'm really taken by it. Thank you very much. Oh, 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 oh I'm going to set that to. I'm, I'm going to live with that for the rest of the day. Um, what's clearly happening here is the supplies, laws of supply and demand aren't working. You know, the, 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 it's it's obvious if the, if it isn't worth it. And the one thing I'm constantly amazed at is nobody seems to research what the what they're going to be earning at the end of it when they go into architecture school. So I come back to my original point. The reason that drives people into this profession is not to do with money. And they find out that now and then we try to sort of find ways to fix it after we're already in it. The reality is, if there were a third the number of architects in the market, fees would be higher. It's simple laws of supply and demand. So, you know, we're back to human nature again. Why do people want to be architects when they know it doesn't pay well? That's that's the research really that I want to see. Um, but um, in the meantime, I think the flip side of that is, if you love if you love your life, if you like this more than working in Starbucks or in a sandwich bar then you've succeeded it's not that bad okay it's it it could be a lot worse Love, lovely talk to everybody and i look forward to another room a nice talk to you alan so hope to see you soon no no thank you thank you so much for, for the speakers who came this week uh in particular to nigel who i i re was really shocked the fact that he responded to a message uh, on linkedin so quickly and said, yeah, I mean, I, I just like that about people like that, you know, who don't mess around, they just, just tell it as it is. So, you know, for, for me to be able to get direct contact to a partner at Hawkins Browns, I think that's pretty, pretty good. Oh, well, look, Jason, thank you. It's my absolute pleasure. It's been, it's been interesting and great to hear what everyone's got to say. Thanks a lot. Please share, subscribe and comment to support the channel.